You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. What's good? How's everybody doing? Buongiorno, buenos dias, ni hao, and konnichiwa, motherfuckers. Welcome, once again, to another episode of Aba Kabu Cafe, the only Kimagure Orange Road podcast in English on the entire internet. I really appreciate you listening to the podcast today. Today we are discussing TV episode 21, Kyosuke in a Pinch, Sweet Nothings at the Weathering Heights. I don't know what these people are talking about. Costco constantly living his life between pinches he's always in some kind of pinch how is this any different than any other episode if it's orange road costco's in a pinch this episode originally aired august 24th of 1987 it was directed by nakamura koichiro now nakamura hasn't directed an episode since episode 12 that was the episode where uh, ayuka was threatening to leave to move to America to study abroad. So that was a tremendously important and pivotal episode. That really would have been like a great way to like just drop the mic, right? Go out on episode 12. It's early in the series run, but it's, it's quite possibly one of the most important episodes. I mean, if you could only watch a handful of the Orange Road episodes and not all 48, you only had time to get a few in. Episode 12 is definitely on the short list for trying to understand the arc of the story and the importance of the Aikua and Kasuga relationship. Before that, Nakamura also directed episode six, That Kid is My Rival. Of course, that's the episode that introduced Kasuga's other, other love, Hino Yusaku. This episode was written by Tomita Sukihiro, who wrote the previous episode, episode 20. So we got a nice little continuity here uh, in this, in this two-parter. Tomita also wrote episode four, the Disturbing Sea Experience episode. Very importantly, Tomita wrote episode seven. That's another very, very important episode in in terms of the the overall arc of this series. That's the Spark Colored Kiss episode where Kasuga revealed a lot of his true insecurities regarding his relationship with Ayukawa and their perceived maturity gap and how he felt so much like this 
outsider and like this little kid compared to her. Tomita also wrote episode nine, Kurumi, I'll teach you how to date and episode 15, which is the episode where Ayukawa briefly, ever so briefly, tries to put a period to the love triangle. She stopped talking to Costco for about five minutes. He called her a million times. She answered the phone and decides she likes him again. That's the episode right there. I just saved you 23 minutes. So right away, I got to ask myself, what does this title mean? Specifically, the Wuthering Heights part. Kyosuke in a pinch makes sense, right? What I wanted to figure out is, is what was the deal with the Wuthering Heights part? Like, why is, why is that significant enough to put it in the title here? It's clearly a reference to the Emily Bronte novel. Long story short, the Japanese really love Wuthering Heights. That's something that I learned doing research for this episode. It's not something that I had previously looked into, but they really, really do love Wuthering Heights, like a lot. They made me read it in high school, but they didn't tell me in high school how much other cultures, specifically the Japanese, really love this book. Now, Wuthering means gusty, blustery. It, it signifies tumult and and passion. And so even for us Westerners who are kind of used to the novel title Wuthering Heights, I mean, you might have been beaten about the head and neck with this book when you were in high school. We still don't use Wuthering a whole lot. That's not really in common parlance in the uh, United States. So Wuthering uh, gives the idea of both a literal, like this landscape is fraught by by uh, gusts and and kind of poor weather that, that makes it hard for things to uh, grow. It's not a very lush area, but then it also has this uh, second meaning, the figurative meaning, and it's a reference to the love between Heathcliff and Catherine in the in the Bronte novel, and it's a central focus for readers of of the the original uh, Wuthering Heights. Uh, Heathcliff and Catherine in that novel, they're often seen as soulmates who are nonetheless separated during their life by things like misunderstanding, jealousy, and even social class. Catherine was born to an affluent family. Ayukawa enjoys a similar station. She's well-educated. She's got these kind of erudite talents. She's very good at school, very smart, and she's very talented musically, just like her traditionally trained musician parents who travel the world playing uh, in the orchestra. Now, Kasuga, by contrast, is a lot more like Heathcliff. He's not from the same station as Ayukawa. They obviously don't share the same socioeconomics within their town. Ayukawa, her family has this nice home. She's got all this space just to herself. Her parents have a house, no doubt, in America where they live, where they reside full-time. And compare that to Kasuga and his family, they live in an apartment in the Green Castle. Kasuga also, with his family, move from town to town. They're more indigent than Ayukawa would be in this case. Somewhat like Heathcliff in the story, he was brought to Wuthering Heights by Catherine's father. So I find myself wondering, is this episode then meant as a possible depiction of events that conspire to turn Ayukawa and Kasuga's love tragic, like in the Bronte novel? Are they supposed to be compared to Catherine and Heathcliff by, by way of this title? Of course, this episode does depict mountains. There are mountains depicted in this episode. And I also found myself comparing it to the idea of Wuthering Heights, the way that the novel describes the mountains. They're not the same as what we see in this episode. In this episode, we see picturesque hillsides. 
Sound of Music shit, right? We're not seeing the gnarled and twisted trees and the uh, more desolate landscape that, that Wuthering Heights is known for. Of course, Heights is reflected by the mountainous terrain, so that part makes sense, but it's really the Wuthering part that I'm kind of holding on to and why we're using that in, in the title of this episode. Well, my conclusion is that there's really not a lot about this narrative that is directly from Wuthering Heights. Unlike episode 11, Don't Ring the Wedding Bells, that episode owes an obvious debt to The Graduate by Mike Nichols. This episode, it's more of an oblique reference. In the um, Japanese title for this uh, episode, of course, they don't say Wuthering Heights. They, don't, they, they use the Japanese term that's also used as the title for the novel when it's translated to Japanese, and that is Arashigaoka, which means more literally stormy hills, stormy mountains. And this is more than likely a reference to the thunderstorm that takes place during this episode. We do see the mountain literally fraught by a storm, and then it's also probably a reference to the turbulence that Kasuga is going to experience with his relationship with Ayukawa in this episode. So there is a purpose in the Wuthering Heights part of this title. It is an intentional literary reference. And it is also meant to figuratively evoke the idea that things may not go so smoothly for Kasuga and Ayukawa in this episode. In the last few episodes, there hasn't been much conflict between Kasuga and Ayukawa. They have gotten along really uh, rather well. In the previous episode, Ayukawa was helping Kasuga to prepare for his tennis match against Kitakata Senpai, and there really wasn't a whole lot of conflict between Kasuga and Ayukawa. They seemed to be rolling kind of smoothly along. Similarly, with the previous episode, episode 19, we saw them uh, stranded on a desert island just off the coast of Japan all by themselves. And really, we saw some very good rapport with them in that episode. We didn't see any conflict between them where they argue with each other or they're at odds. And um, in this episode, we're going to see much more of that after several kind of smooth sailing episodes where Casca's, uh, Casca's conflicts have been elsewhere. In this episode, they return again to his relationship with Ayukawa and how these events that we're about to see make his life a little stormy, like the title would imply. Now, earlier I mentioned that the power is not relied upon very heavily at all in this episode. In fact, there's really only one uh, use of the power. Kurumi performs the tremendous feat of summoning Jingoro, presumably from their home. While the simultaneously lounging, she makes it look very easily. She's she's lounging in this chair, reading a magazine, looking perfectly at ease while wagging her finger to summon Jingoro across the landscape. And he's uh, he's being levitated across this um, picturesque landscape for comedy. It's really more about his reaction to the fact that he realizes he's floating it's it's just a, a gag to remind us that they're espers. She does finally later in the episode succeed in getting Jingoro all the way there to camp so he can rejoin uh, his tortures, I mean his owners. But throughout the episode, that is really, that's the extent of the power use that we see, which I think is actually very nice. I mean, Kasuga has leaned on the power a little bit in the previous couple of episodes. It's been a little bit more subtle. It hasn't been like a deus ex machina that's resolved the entire plot for him. It's been a little piece. Like in the previous episode when 
he had to save Shikaru, he did rely on the power a little bit to um, allow him to do so, to pull the boat uh, to him so that he could get Shikaru out of the water. And that, of course, exhausted him. It was, it was an element of the story, but it was not uh, the, the deus ex machina that came down from heaven to solve the conflict for him. Uh, and in this episode, you could write the power out entirely. I mean, this is the closest we're going to get to Anohi, where there's no ESP mentioned at all. Here, it is only very briefly seen as Kurumi is breaking the rules and using ESP. Otherwise, it's not a part of today's narrative. We're going to focus more squarely on this character of the week that we're going to meet, Kumiko, and uh, how Kasuga's day with Kumiko affects his relationship with Ayukawa. Because, of course, Ayuko was going to find out. So the gang is bored with the tennis demonstrations they're being forced to watch. Komatsu and Hata fail at escaping, but Kasuga succeeds. And I wondered, did he use the power here? They don't, they don't show him explicitly using the power, but he is somehow able to get away when Komatsu and Hata both fail. We don't see him scrunch up his eyes. We don't hear the music that typically accompanies the power usage. But even Shikaru and Ayukawa, whom he was sitting next to, they don't notice his absence. So I wondered, did he use the power here? We don't know. But we, we do, do see uh, a pan across the lake with this superimposition of Kasuga's face in close-up as we're seeing the lake, which is kind of rare for this show. These, these type of superimpositions are somewhat rare. I mean, it's something that you see more commonly in a dissolve from one scene to another. You'll see one scene kind of dissolve out as the other dissolves in, and they're superimposed over each other for a moment, a brief second or two. But here we actually see Kasuga's face the entire for the entire pan across the lake, and then we get a separate cut to yet a third shot. So it's not used as a, a cross dissolve or a dissolve at all, which is interesting. And I think the idea is to... to make it known that he's surveying, he's scanning the lake, that the pan across the lake is being told from his point of view. I thought Kumiko's reveal was fun and kind of unique. The The camera focused in tight on the reflection of Kasuga on the surface of the lake. And until he his stone hits the water, he's skipping rocks here. But when the ripples clear, Kumiko is there. Kumiko herself is shown as kind of a cross between Ayukawa and Manami. She's got the Manami-style glasses, but she seems to have Ayukawa's sort of fashion sense. Also notably, Kumiko is wearing a straw hat. It's not red. That's important, too. It's not a red straw hat. It's not a red string of destiny for Kasuga. But we are already immediately seeing a parallel being drawn between Kumiko and Ayukawa. What's more is that she and Kasuga argue over the number of times the rock skipped across the lake. This is becoming an even more obvious parallel to Kasuga's first meeting with Ayukawa. They're very much setting Kumiko up as a potential rival for Ayukawa. There's already some similarities here. Or Kasuga just argues about numbers with everybody that he meets. So a gust of wind blows in this moment that takes the straw hat off of Kumiko's head. And even Kasuga, dense as he can be, he realizes the parallel here. We see another superimposition of the scene from the first episode where he catches Ayukawa's hat. And he realizes in this moment what we knew a few seconds earlier. And that was that 
there is something about Kumiko that reminds him of Ayukawa. Kasuga does not catch Kumiko's hat, which is also, I think, important. It's like the filmmakers are saying that Kumiko is pretty close to Kasuga's match. There are some obvious parallels with Ayukawa, and she's attractive. I mean, he's already looked her up and down, but she's not quite perfect for him like Ayukawa is. The, the, the straw hat isn't red for a reason, but she's still a pretty close facsimile. It's almost as if in an alternate world that was absent of Ayukawa, Kumiko could have been Kasuka's perfect match. Now, Kumiko, again, she's a character of the week. We're never going to see her again after this episode. She is unimportant after she has been uh, utilized to establish the conflict, drive the conflict forward. And once the events have played out, there's no real narrative use for her any longer. But this time, she's a sympathetic one. Uh, although she still represents a possible wedge between Kasuga and Ayukawa. And so she would prevent the union of our protagonists, the relationship that most of us are all rooting for, Kasuga and Ayukawa to get together. Now, Kumiko could represent a barrier to that. She could prevent Kasuga and Ayukawa from getting together. So she has a more ambivalent role in this episode, whereas the character of the week Koto was very, she was very sympathetic, especially the more we learned about her. The Kitakata character was, was not sympathetic at all. He was a jackass deserved worse than he got. He got off easy, but Kumiko is maybe floating there somewhere in between. She's not openly hostile like Kitakata was. And yet she does seem like she wants to subvert the ayukawa Kasuga relationship. She wants to turn his very carefully balanced lifestyle of this love triangle upside down. And she, she could, could really rock Kasuga's boat. She pursues Kasuga very hard in this episode. In that sense, she's kind of like Kasuga because Kasuga really only ever pursues Ayukawa. But then also... Kasuga needs that pursuit. He needs someone to come after him. Unless we're talking about Ayukawa. Ayukawa is, again, the only character that Kasuga ever really pursues in any serious fashion. He's always running after Ayukawa. He's always trying to catch up with her. He's always trying to convince her, explain some misunderstanding to her. I mean, he pursues Ayukawa. He does not really do a lot of pursuit of any other character in this, in this show. So in that sense, we really need the Kumiko character to be a more assertive. Kasuga as a people pleaser comes front and center in this episode. Importantly, Kasuga lies to Kumiko when she asks him if he has someone that he likes. By all rights, he really should have answered yes. He loves Ayukawa, we know this, and he's ostensibly dating Shikaru. So really, he had two reasons to say yes to Kumiko here, and yet he says, no, he doesn't have anybody like that. Also, Kasuga in voiceover describes an irresistible scent of seduction in the air. He's unable to say no to her, which is due in part to her charm and attractiveness, but I think it's also that she's persistent with him. He's not good at saying no. He's a people pleaser. He doesn't like disappointing people. And again, she persists. 
he has to suspect at this point that Shikaru and or Ayukawa are going to come looking for him at some point in the episode when he goes missing. They don't know where he is. And yet he still goes off with Kumiko. He's really setting himself up for a lot of trouble. I think in some way he knows this, but again, he's too much of a people pleaser to say no. And this episode really only works because he's a people pleaser. If he wasn't a people pleaser, he probably would have been more honest with Kumiko and said he liked someone else and that he couldn't hang out with her for the day and she probably would have moved on. Maybe she would have found Komatsu and Hata who would have been more than willing to acquiesce to her particular needs for that day. And of course, as I just said a moment ago, if they don't come looking for you, they're going to see you go off with Kumiko just as Ayukawa does. She's watching from across the lake as Kasuga walks off with Kumiko. She probably understands Kasuga better than any of the other characters, so she might be aware of his difficulty with dominant personalities. She might be aware that he's not good at saying no and that he can sort of get kind of pushed and pulled. He's a little malleable in that sense. Komatsu and Hata are being really rather bold with Ayukawa here. They seem to be rubbing her nose in it a little bit that, that Kasuga just went off with a strange girl that no one knows. Ayukawa swears slash intimidates them both into silence. She uses a subtle threat. And Hata makes this joke about being like cool and nonchalant, silent type. You know, and then, of course, Ayukawa and Komatsu both react to this with sort of like this um, surprised incredulity. It's like a rare instance of Ayukawa being animated like this. And that's why I thought it was worth mentioning. She's usually such a cool character. Like she always keeps her cool, but here she's animated the same as Komatsu. They both, their eyes become this kind of, um, this kind of uh, semi-exasperated squint, kind of like disbelieving, kind of like, what? And their mouth is drawn straight across this kind of WTF bullshit is this kind of pseudo-grin, grimace thing. And it's it's one of the rare occasions that Ayukawa is, is, is drawn like this. Again, she's a cool character. She's not played for comedy very much at all in this series. So Anytime Ayukawa is played for comedy like this, where her facial expressions and her physical responses become this sort of comedic response to what this other character said, it's kind of a notable thing. Now, one, one thing I also thought was kind of interesting about this interaction with Komatsu and Hata that Ayukawa had is that Hata's urge to spill the beans and gossip here is compared in an analogy with like a need to pee almost as if it's a biological function. like It's like a biological urge. It's a biological need that Hata just like needs to go gossip. Kasuka is saved from kissing Kumiko by a sudden storm. So this is the storm that I mentioned at the beginning. This is where these picturesque mountains become a little stormy. And I think here that nature is a reflection of the turbulence in Kasuga and Ayukawa's relationship. So it's a symbol for what's happening in Kasuga and Ayukawa's relationship as Kasuga is almost derailed from his pursuit of Ayukawa by Kumiko here. These storm clouds roll in just as he gets really, really dangerously close to doing something sexual with Kumiko. Kumiko is a legitimate threat to Ayukawa here in terms of getting with Kasuga. Kasuga also refrains from kissing her when he notices what looks like a tear. He thinks maybe she's crying, and that means he doesn't want to move on a girl who may be in 
emotional duress. That's that's good on Kasuga. I mean, if you notice that the girl's crying, you probably shouldn't try to have sex with her. Just good general advice for the future. Kurumi rooting for the thunder demon, whatever that is. That sounds like a, a wrestler or something. That just sounds like it should be a wrestler. It's further proof that she embodies chaos in Orange Road. It's typically presumed to be mostly her fault for all of the Kasuga's moves, for instance. They've moved seven times to seven different towns because their power is constantly found out. It's constantly discovered, and it's usually, at least presumed to be, Kurumi's fault for using it indiscriminately, without thought. That's the thing. Kurumi uses the power without seeming to consider the consequences. She just does. She doesn't really think too much about what's going to happen once she does. She acts impulsively. And there are indeed consequences. After all, the Costco's moved seven times, as I mentioned. However, those consequences, those seven moves, include the move that brought the Costco's to their current residence in their current town. One of the consequences of Kurumi's chaotic nature is that Kasuga met Ayukua. So the chaos that Kurumi introduces is therefore a necessary element of this show because it led directly to Kasuga meeting Ayukua on the stairs that day. That most certainly would not have happened if the Kasugas hadn't been forced to move by Kurumi. So here we're reminded that she represents this chaos. Everyone else is afraid of the thunder and the lightning, and it's it's at least startling people. Even Ayukawa is startled by the peal of, of lightning that strikes a nearby tree. Even Ayukawa flinches. This is the most badass character of badass characters, and she flinches because it's an autonomic nervous system response to flinch, and the lightning bolt was rather close. Kurumi is the only one, like, throwing the windows open, arms open, ready to embrace the thunder demon. And it's a, it's a reflection of her embracing the chaos that she represents. And this is our reminder coming from the filmmakers that this is a chaotic character, and she's willing to introduce this level of chaos that, while problematic for the characters, has also been extremely useful. So it's sort of a good chaos, or at least the balance of her chaotic consequences have been moral good. Shikaru running out into the thunderstorm to find and save Kasuga while everyone else, including other men, hide under a table from the lightning, it shows that her feelings for him are genuine. I don't think her reasons for loving him are as profound or mature or as well-developed as Ayukua's. You can see my analysis of OVA number three, I was a cat, I was a fish, and I talk a little bit about it there. So she seems a little bit more shallow what she digs about Kasuga. She just kind of thinks he's cute. But she is the only character to go running into the storm out of concern for Kasuga. Ayukua seems to be refraining out of jealousy. Like, if Kasuga's going to wander off with some strange girl, then he can deal with the storm on his own. And Ayukua was right about Kasuga finding some shelter to wait out the, the thunder and lightning. Kasuga comments that his current predicament is like a corny teenage soap opera, which actually might be kind of a tongue-in-cheek self-reference in kind of a meta way, like he's referring to what we're watching also as being somewhat corny and 
focused on on the love life of teenagers. So maybe this was kind of a, a sort of a meta self-referential element of the episode that I thought was interesting. And what I also thought was interesting is that during this scene where Kasuga and Kumiko are allowing their clothes to dry in the in the small cabin that they found, presumably they started the fire as well. There's a sequence where Kumiko is still trying to get Kasuga to have sex with her. And at one point, Kumiko steps through the fire. And we see a tight shot of her legs, pretty much from the knee down to the feet, a tight shot of the fire as she steps through it. And we just see her legs in a, in a relatively close shot. Kasuga now- has just before that moment, insisted that junior high school students are too young to be having sex. So maybe stepping through fire is a symbol of Kumiko's determination to do so. But also she steps through the fire just after declaring that she's thoroughly thought her decision through, in which case stepping through the fire could be a symbol of her commitment to that decision. She's ready to cross this threshold into adulthood. However, As a third option, it may also foreshadow Kumiko's successful operation. She comes out on the other side of the operation intact. So I think any one of those readings of that shot is perfectly valid. Although I lean towards more, given everything that happens and how the rest of the story unfolds, I lean towards the third interpretation that it was probably foreshadowing the fact that Kumiko is going to make it through her operation. The storm clears, though, uh, as soon as Casca comes to understand Kumiko a little bit more. So again, the 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 idea that Kumiko is somehow uh, this threat that is going to make Casca's life stormy, specifically his relationship with Ayukawa, is symbolized here with the weather. And as Casca begins to gain a more thorough understanding of Kumiko and her motivations, this storm clears away. Something important here is that all of our Orange Road characters, until this episode, are healthy young people. None of them spend time considering their own mortality. Most teenagers don't. When you're 15, you're going to live forever. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about what it's going to be like to be 85 or 90. They have their entire life ahead of them. And none of them have gone through what Kumiko is going through. Kumiko's life might be entirely behind her if her operation fails. So she is in a dramatically different headspace than any of them are. And I can't blame her for wanting to experience all that she can. And maybe she'll never have a mortgage, but I think you could die without one of those and be perfectly happy. I don't blame her. 15 years old is a little young for sex, in my opinion, but if there's a strong possibility that you might not live to see 16, then I think you absolutely got to get it. That's my opinion, but I don't blame her at all for trying to have this really important human experience before her time on earth is over, and she's thinking it might be over soon. She's facing an existential crisis. None of these characters have, have had to stare down the barrel of that gun. Somebody who's had a disease, somebody who's really considered that they might die soon from their disease, I think you tend to act a little bit more immediately 
Don't put off the things that you want to do, people. That's the lesson of this episode. Don't put off the things that you want to do. The shit you need to get done, you never know when your last day is going to be, even if you don't have a big operation like Kumiko does. You don't know. And so don't wait till next year. Don't say, I'll do it one day. When I retire, maybe, maybe. But maybe you'll die with some shit still inside you. So I think the lesson for this episode is, Get it out of you while you can. You know, do something about it today. Try to make it happen. So this is where she becomes a really sympathetic character. This is where maybe Kumiko was trying to break up Ayukawa with Kasuga, and and we don't like her because she was really trying to drive a wedge here. Although I don't think you can blame her, right? I we still have to acknowledge that Kasuga lied to her about not having someone that he likes. Now, Aikawa still seems pissed at Kasuga as the gang searches for him. And Kasuga not knowing what to do with a sobbing, near-naked Kumiko is probably about the most realistic aspect of any Orange Road episode ever. Kasuga cowering behind the clothesline has got to be the most pathetic thing I've ever seen, on the other hand. Witnessing what happens between Ayukawa and Kasuga, Kumiko must, at that moment, realize what kind of situation she had really wandered into. She must have realized that Kasuga lied about not having someone that he liked. In her defense, she did try to make sure that Kasuga wasn't seeing anyone before she attempted to have sex with him. I don't think that she wanted to cause anyone any heartache or any trouble. I think she wanted to find a young single guy about her age to help her out with the thing. All it takes to resolve Kasuga's conflict is for Kumiko to explain herself. She was trying to break some dick off inside her because she might die soon. We all understand that. Everybody understands that. Ayukawa understands that. And things were all good when they realized that Kumiko had kind of a justifiable reason for trying to uh, very quickly have some sex. I don't know. I think it's maybe a little bit judgmental in hindsight, you know, at the end of the episode when you realize how Kumiko resolves the conflict between the other characters. I think maybe it's a little judgmental of her libido that she should want to have sex with a single guy, a guy who at least lied to her about not having any attachments, I think that might have been a little uh, judgmental on the character's part. And I think that may have been baked into the narrative a little bit here too. Like if she was some bad girl with loose morals, she's this less sympathetic character because she's trying to horn in on what Ayuka was got and she's trying to steal Kasuga from her and that really puts a lot of the blame squarely on Kumiko it frames Kumiko as like it's her fault but really we we have to consider that Kasuga was uh going along with it and then we also have to or he wasn't putting up much of a fight and then we also have to consider that Kasuga was initially so charmed by her that he did lie about having someone that he liked and so it's. I don't think it's fair for the narrative to imply that if she had simply been a girl who was trying to have some sex, that she would have been this antagonistic character for for doing so. So there's a little. There's a very subtle thread of that in this episode, and I think it's really touched on, or at least it culminates in some of Kasuga's conflict ending voiceover where he says oh she's not a bad girl after all she's not easy after all as if being promiscuous is this sinful thing i mean it's a more puritanical view 
of human sexuality. And, and so you see that reflected a little bit here. I think it's baked into the narrative a little bit here. And, and so that might be a sticking point for some viewers, and that might be a point of a valid point of criticism. Basically, everything was all good once Koska and Ayukua realized she wasn't a hoe. There's a moment early on in Koska's time with Kumiko in which, as they're running among these picturesque wildflowers on the hill, she wordlessly places a flower in her hair, and then she shows it off to a blushing Koska as they make eye contact. A few moments later, as they're running, Kumiko falls to the ground exhausted. A close-up shot of the flower is shown falling from her hair. She is literally deflowered in that moment, and that visual symbol is a clear foreshadowing that Kumiko is, unbeknownst to the audience at that time, in that moment, she's a virgin, and she's wishing to have her first sexual experience. That's right before she grasps Kasuga by the waist and tells him it's okay. She gives her consent. At the end of the episode, Ayukawa and Kasuga receive a correspondence, a postcard from Kumiko, informing them that her operation was a success. The filmmakers cut away back to the camp, and the characters are home from the camp now. Kasuga and Ayuko were seen reading the letter in Abakabu. So camp is over at the end of this episode, but we flash back to the camp. We, we see those meadows filled with wildflowers again, leading up the side of the mountain. And the camera closes in on a single flower that's identical to the one that Kumiko put in her hair. And that identical flower is the episode-ending photograph and by way of that photograph, the filmmakers are telling us that her virginal state is intact. That flower can also be seen as a metaphor for Kumiko herself. The first one was plucked in its prime before it had a chance to live out a full life. But then seeing the identical flower in the ending photograph, we know that this is still rooted firmly in the earth, vibrant and alive, just like Kumiko is post-surgery. Kasuga had a strong intuition that her operation would be a success, and I actually like to think that this is due to his ESP, as evidenced by the fact that he was right. Also, I got a strong intuition that you need to hit subscribe to this podcast. You need to leave me a review if you're listening to it on Apple product. I also think that you should do the real thing. Head on over to patreon.com slash team Almy so that you can become a Patreon of Team Almy Studios. Your support is very much appreciated. We love you so much. I send merch to every single tier. I post episodes early. I'll also uh, throw up some bonus content. We uh, last weekend just did an episode where I watched Shinkor for the very first time. 25 years I hadn't seen Shinkor. I finally watched it, and other people hung out while I was thoroughly not even nearly as disappointed as I thought I was going to be. It was really, really great. Also, if you would please check out my other podcast, Creatures of the Night. I'll leave a link in the show notes. I would very much appreciate and i'm sure you need some other entertainment during the rest of your week too it's not a tuesday and got a little music for you let's find an outro song <laughs>